Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? Awesome. Well, we're uh, definitely looking forward to our time in God's Word today. I, I've so much appreciated uh, your encouragement, your feedback, and, and just the way that God's Word has been speaking to you over the last few weeks as we've kind of waded through those fun waters of uh, what it means from God's perspective to be a husband and wife and, and relate to one another. And so thank you for uh, your encouragement there and, and really just being for sensitive to the Word of God. Um, that That's awesome. So that gives me encouragement in the way that, you know, as we teach the Word here, um, the freedom that I feel to bring forth the Word as God puts it on my heart. So uh, grateful for that. So turn in your Bibles to First Peter chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be continuing our, our series in First Peter, and we've been looking at this idea of holding fast. Um, holding fast in a, in a world that is always shifting around us, that we hold fast to our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you have toddlers? Raise your hand. Okay, everyone else. Now keep your hands up. Everyone else, pray for those people. Um, how many of you have had toddlers? Yeah? yeah. Okay. Uh, how many of you are acting like toddlers right now? Okay. Um, well, you know, toddlers have their own set of rules. Um, there, there's a whole set of laws just for toddlers. Here are the 10 property laws for toddlers. Number one, if I like it, it's mine. Number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Number three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. Number four, if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. Number five, if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Number six, if I'm doing or building something, all of the pieces are mine. Number seven, if it looks just like mine, it's mine. Number eight, if I saw it first, it's mine. Number nine, if you're playing with something and you put it down, automatically, it's mine. And number ten, if it's broken, it's yours. <laughs> so these, lo these laws work fine for toddlers. But it's certainly not what should be governing us as mature believers in Christ. As followers of Jesus, the emphasis isn't what is mine, but yours. Not me, but you. Not self, but others. Back in 1744, there was a saying that was written in Poor Richard's Almanac that was attributed to Benjamin Franklin. And it's the old saying that goes, you'll catch more flies with what? Honey than you do with vinegar. The point of that is simply this. When you have a sweeter approach, a nicer approach, you're going to be more successful in achieving your goals than when you're mean and grouchy. And we all can probably understand that personally and also experientially around with those around us. 
And so Peter's contention in this portion of Scripture in 1 Peter 3, even going way back in the chapter 2, verse 11, is that we as believers would keep our behavior excellent among those who do not know who Jesus is. In fact, that's what he said in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And then he goes on and he says, you know, keep your behavior excellent. Glorify God in what you do. Because we see that those around us that don't know Jesus need to have that witness. And what we know when we live in a fallen world is those that don't know Jesus are going to do things and act in a certain way that is going to frustrate you as a follower of Jesus because their attitudes and actions are going against the revealed will of God. And so it's easy for us to see the actions of sinful people and get frustrated and and kind of turn away from them and become agitated and irritated and frustrated. But Peter says that is not to be so for those who know Jesus. And so he walked us through example after example, starting with living in a world where the government is not following God. And then being in a work situation where our employee employers are not following God. And then we talked about over the last few weeks for the wives that have spouses that have husbands that are not following God. And even last week, the call for the husbands to be selfless and sacrificial, even when maybe their spouse isn't following God. That we are to follow the example of Jesus, who was faithful to the very end by submitting himself to the will of the Father. And so, in this call for mutual submission, we've been challenged to put on the heart of Christ in our lives and to kind of dig in to the relationships that we have to be life-giving in how we live this life. And now Peter's drawing our attention not to just those kinds of relationships that exist outside of the church. In verses 8 and following, he's now directing our attention to the way that we treat each other. So this passage today is extremely practical and helpful for us because right now you're sitting in a place where there are other people that profess to have a faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter is saying these are the attitudes that we are all to have with each other. And the spoiler alert is don't act like a toddler. Like that's what he, he's not calling us to that kind of behavior. We know this because in verse eight, he says to sum up all of you in this phrase, he's calling us to humbly entrust ourselves to the care of someone else. And Peter now says, this is how we should be in the church. So keep your behavior excellent, put on the heart of Christ Mutually submit to people. And to sum up 
all of us are to act a certain way. I was thinking about this this week as I was studying the text, and this question kind of came through my mind. Why would Peter need to exhort the church to show care to one another? Doesn't that seem obvious? It would seem like a no-brainer to me. Like, we should just get it, right? We should. Thank you for at least being honest, Terry. I mean, out of all the places and in all the relationships that we have in the world, why should believers need to be reminded to take care of each other? And sadly, some of you, even today, have scars on your heart of past experiences in church, and I'm not just talking about in a building, but that could be, but even in relation to other people that belong to Jesus, that belong to the church, where you've been wounded because of a lack of care given. And so when I mean church, I mean us, you and I, the people that belong to Jesus, And there's a part of us that would think it should be obvious that we should take care of each other. We're part of God's family. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, all of us. We are precious in God's sight. We are set apart for eternity together. And we're going to spend eternity together in the presence of Jesus. And yet... We don't always care for each other the way that God wants us to. I think one of the things that we forget when we're a Christian for any length of time is that all of us are in process. I don't know about you, but there are times I look at people that are in the faith and I think, why don't you get it already? And they probably look at me like, why don't you get it already? Right? We're in process. That process is called sanctification, where God is in the process of molding us and shaping us through the power of his Holy Spirit under the ministry of his word to make us more like his son, Jesus. And that process of sanctification is a process because in us, there is a battle going on inside. And and this week, it was so helpful to be reminded of that in our men's ministry because we spent the whole time discussing the, the process of sanctification, of Christian growth, because the inside of us, we have the Spirit of God working and active, and we have the flesh, the old man that is battling because we want to hold on to what is comfortable. But we're all in process. We all, in a sin-sick world, still struggle with sin. We are forgiven and redeemed, but God is in the process of maturing us. And we forget that. We don't make allowance for each other as often as we should. And we need to be careful that because we forget or are soon to forget... 
that we're all in process. That in spite of the way that we treat each other, in spite of the way that we're going to hurt each other and wound each other, we are to show grace, forgiveness, love. And this morning, Peter's calling us to that higher plane of relationship. What it means to be committed to Jesus and committed to one another. We forget in the church, we need help. That we aren't a collection of a bunch of angels. I love you all. I, I do. And I am proud to be your pastor. And I love being here at this church. I, but I know you're not perfect. Like, I, don't, don't think for a second that like when I get around my other pastor friends and we talk about our churches, I'm just like, man, they are just this perfect group of people that just nothing is ever wrong. Yeah. And, you know, by your laughing, that is true. But God's word is given to us to live this life with wisdom and skill as we honor him. Now, you're going to find as you read the Bible, especially in the New Testament, and especially the letters that were written to the churches, that there is counsel given on how we should live this life. Like this is what we sometimes miss in our study of Scripture, that the, the Bible isn't just only about the gospel leading to salvation. That's a big part of it. But as we come into relationship with Jesus, much of the Bible is about how we live now as a result of who we know Jesus to be. That process, that journey, where we need guidance, we need wisdom, we need we need God's Spirit to work in us so that we can apply these things in our lives. And so when you read the New Testament and you read the epistles that were written to the churches, you come across the phrase, and it's almost found 50 times or just over 50 times in the New Testament, and it's the one another phrase. It's this, these times in the letters that are written to churches that are like us full of people that love Jesus. We're under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The apostles wrote and said, you should dot, dot, dot to one another. And there's all sorts of one another's pray for one another, correct one another, give to one another, have fellowship with one another, like all these kinds of one another's. But you know, what's interesting when you do a study and compile these over 50 times it's mentioned, there's one phrase that is repeated more often than any other one another. And over 14 times in the New Testament, this is what the writers say, love one another 14 times. And you would think, why don't we just need to hear it once and get it? For the same reason, you have to tell your toddler, no, 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 right? Because there's something wrong in the wiring of this heart that is being sanctified, where God says, this is where I want you to be. And the old nature says, but I love this. And God needs to keep reminding us, love each other. Love one another. 
So church, I pray that we approach texts like this as a willing student, someone that's leaning in, not someone that says, oh, I get it. I know. But someone, even if you are maturing in your faith, you can say with God's help, give me more grace, Lord, to be like the person that you want me to be. Help me to say no to my flesh. And help me to trust your promises. So the question is then, who are we to be? Well, let's read verses 8 and 9. To sum it up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil, for insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Boy, this is really good. And it's really challenging. I mean, if we only had verses 8 and 9 to, in all of Scripture to direct how we treat each other, it's enough for us to have solid loving relationships. But what we need to notice first is that these exhortations that Peter gives don't speak merely of actions. So I don't want you to look at this passage and as we break down what it means to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, think, okay, I need to act like this kind of person. He's not just calling us to go through the mechanics of overt nice behavior. You know what it is when someone isn't genuine, right? Correct. We know what it's like to be around disingenuous people. Peter is saying, as you put on these attributes in your life, they should come from your heart. It should be your attitude as a person that loves Jesus Christ. That we should be driven to be these kind of people because we are set apart for God's glory. And because we love God, we want to listen to Him and follow Him. We need to be reminded that all of us who belong to Jesus Christ, that are a part of His church, are strangers and aliens together. In a very simple example... We're all on the same team. And and we need to lean in so that we can understand that as we walk through this world together, we don't hurt each other prematurely or selfishly. All of us who belong to Jesus have been bought with His precious blood. And in every way, we are to be respectful of one another. This is a key theme on this passage of submission. And so what I want to do is just kind of look at these words that Peter calls us to and and draw your attention to not only what they mean, but what it means for us. Uh, The first word that is mentioned is harmonious. Now, the implication is that we realize that there are individual differences. That there's going to be individual differences in a group even like this, right? Right. Let me ask you this. Are you all the same in the way that you think? No. There's going to be individual differences. 
And yet, we are to cooperate with one another rather than being irritated. That's what's behind this word harmonious. One commentator noted on this verse, we do not all need to sing the same tune, but our tune should harmonize with one another. Now, we're not all going to agree on everything. And I'm not just talking about like outside things like, you know, the Steelers are the best football team out there. I would love for you to agree with me, but I know that's not going to happen. But you shouldn't hear things like that and say, I can't go to that church because that guy thinks that. Now, that's a silly kind of thing. What about politics? What about the way that you should, you know, focus on certain things in life that other people don't focus on life? Like how you order your world might be different than how someone else orders their world. We're going to disagree. We might even disagree on church things. Like, should we sing this kind of song or this kind of song? But what we shouldn't do is fight over it. What we shouldn't do is look at someone who we know is in Christ that is thinking differently and say, I don't like you because you hold a different position. We're not always going to agree on the details. And we need to acknowledge that. We often attach this to visible things because we can see that. And, you know, like one of these kind of examples is, you know, it was just a month ago that we had our members of the church vote on to approve an expenditure that our deacons will then use monies to take care of the building. You know, different projects that we have in and around the church. And it passed unanimously. Nobody disagreed that we should you know, have, have money available for them to take care of the building. But what could happen is, right, they have a list of things and, and someone says, well, I wouldn't do it that way. Why did you install it this way when for my whole life I've been taught to install it that way? Or why did you paint the wall that color when it should be this color? I know it seems silly, but I've known churches that have split over things like this. Where people who belong to Jesus have fought with each other. And it's like a civil war breaks out in their church over lesser things. Church, may it not be so for us. Satan loves to destroy the testimony of churches through division and arguments on lesser things. That's why from the pulpit, you're not going to hear me get into this nitty gritty uh, discussion on societal issues unless it comes through the word of God, because it is not my job to to show you what I think about everything. I have a lot of opinions on things. But unless it comes through the filter of the word of God, my opinion doesn't matter as I share it with you. It doesn't. 
And so we're not going to divide or argue or fight or say, oh, you, you simple-minded person. And I'm using a nice term for that. But we need to be harmonious. I would say one of the things that I love about our church is that we can disagree on lesser things and know that we still care for each other. But Peter says this is an attitude that needs cultivated and it needs maintained. It's an attitude that needs cultivated, you know, kind of like when you bust up the ground of the heart. And it needs maintained. You need to take care of it. You need to be watchful for it. You need to pray that God would protect us. So I think one of the things that you need to pray for as you pray for the ministry of this church is that God would help us to stay unified for the sake of the gospel. Because we know that there is an enemy that wants to destroy the unity that we have for the gospel. So be harmonious. Be sympathetic is the next thing. Now, this word, sympathetic, means to suffer with another person. And it carries with it the idea that you're entering in and sharing the feelings of that person. It's different than just feeling bad for someone. Like you hear bad news about someone, you say, aw, aw, poor them. It's not that. To be sympathetic with someone is that in their grief... You grieve. And in their joy, you rejoice. You enter into their lives and walk with them and sit with them and cry with them as you love them. Simply stated, it means that we follow the command of Galatians 6 2 bear one another's burdens and therefore. Or thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Bear their burdens. What does it mean to bear burdens? Like put it on your back. And you might say, Pastor, that seems great, but I have my own mess that I'm working through. That's okay. God will give you the grace to bear someone else's burdens. And what you'll find along the way when you're vulnerable and transparent in your own life and with your struggles is that you'll find people of like-minded faith that will what? Bear your burdens. And they're not going to give up on you. But we're called to be sympathetic. Not just, be, not just feel bad for people. Not just look at them and say, oh, I'll pray for you. We're a family. We need to care for each other. When you notice that someone isn't here for a while, and this happens, don't ask me, oh, where's so-and-so? We have a brand new directory. Pick up the phone, give them a call, and say, how are you doing? Because you know sometimes people are absent because they're going through things in their life and they're just kind of hanging on. And to hear from someone who is of like-minded faith, reach out to them and say, I'm praying for you. How can I encourage you? Is there anything that you need? How do I walk through this with you? Could just be the biggest encouragement that they need in that moment. 
Be sympathetic towards one another. And with that, we go back to that principle that we're all in process. We have not arrived yet. God is working his will in our lives, but it doesn't happen overnight. And I've been reminded of that, just understanding that we all need a lot of grace because we're going to go through things. And even if we just approach God and pray and ask God for help, it doesn't change overnight. Sometimes we just need people to be with us, to walk through it, to know that he is faithful and good as he works his purposes in our lives. So be sympathetic. Then Paul or Peter says, be brotherly. And some, if you're a lady out there you can, and you say, well, I can't be brotherly. I can be sisterly, though. Well, okay, be sisterly. Well, that's great because the, it's not a, a gender thing. It's more of the idea of what Paul is, or Peter is saying. And this word brotherly, it comes from the Greek word philadelphoi. And it means brotherly love, family love. And I said this a couple of months ago. I am astonished that the word brotherly love is for Philadelphia and knowing what happens in Philadelphia. It's like what happened in translation there? Y'all have a jail in your stadiums. You threw snowballs at Santa Claus. But anyways, anyways, I digress. The better translation of Philadelphia, which is brotherly love, could be love each other as a family should. Now listen, some of you come from situations where love isn't the first thing that is shown at the family table. And when you hear this, you're like, okay, I, I hear what you're saying, but my experience isn't this close-knit, warm, fuzzy, mutual love kind of feeling. And this call to love one another in a family way is kind of foreign to you. But that doesn't mean you get a pass. This is an attitude that we are to cultivate. That, we, that all we do towards one another is motivated by love. That it's the fuel that drives the engine. That our goal, that our aim towards one another is to love each other the way that Christ loves us. Brotherly love means to selflessly care for one another, often at the expense of our own ways, our wants, and our desires. To love someone in the faith the way that we should as we belong to a family, God's family together, is that you take a backseat the, for the interests or desires that you have for the sake of someone else. Be brotherly in your attitudes towards those who are in the faith. And then Peter says, be kind-hearted. At the root of this word is the Greek word spelunkna. Like people that go into caves, right? They, they're spelunkers, right? They go deep into the caves. They like real deep. And it's the same word. But in the Greek language, this word referred to the human bowels. And you're like, ugh. In essence, it's the guts. 
In the New Testament, when used, this word refers to what we feel towards one another. We need to feel it. Not just know it. And it's not just going into church and saying, I love you. My brain says, I love you. No, we feel it. Like, you know, when you're gone for a while and you come back to church and say, man, I really miss these people. I missed being away, not just from the service. I missed my family. And that comes from like down here. Being kind hearted refers to what to that which moves us in a loving way towards each other. Which moves us in a loving way. You know the phrase, I had a gut feeling about something. It's the same idea. The church ought to be a place where the walking wounded feel at home. People who are wounded and beat up by this world should be able to come because we revel in being tender hearted towards each other. It's something we should be great at. And one of the things that I love about our church is the way that people talk about the genuineness of our church family. That we are known for the way that we care for each other. I am proud for the way that you show genuine, kind-hearted care. But we need to continue to have an attitude in this area and cultivate it. Continue to grow in it. So be kind-hearted. And then be humble in spirit. Now, this trait refers back to what Peter says in, in being brotherly towards each other. Because we show deference to each other, to each other's wants and needs. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4 help us with this. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, both humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Be humble in spirit. We should look at each other in humility and understand we're all in process. We're all growing and we need grace. And we want to do whatever we can to help that person mature in Christ. Commentator Peter David said about these verses, Christians are to be emotionally involved with each other. And some of you guys are like sweating right now. It's like, oh, emotions. I don't like emotions. But that's, it's not just a factual faith. It's not just an intellectual kind of pursuit that we're on. That's one of the things that we need to understand about like attending church. Attending church is really important. I am not going to minimize it. I love that you're here sitting under the ministry of the word of God. It is our goal in, in, um, in relation to what Paul says in Ephesians, that we equip you for the work of the ministry. And one of the primary ways we're able to do that is to open the word of God so that you can grow and be discipled. But attendance in church is not the way that you can grow in these areas that Paul or that Peter is calling us to. You can't be humble in spirit, kind-hearted, brotherly, sympathetic, and harmonious if all you do is sit this way looking at me. 
How do we do it? We share life together. We walk together in different ways. Now, one of the things that we have here is our life groups, our small group ministry, where you can spend time with people in a different venue and setting. We're talking about the word of God. We're learning together the things that God is teaching us as we study it here on Sunday mornings. But we share life together. We pray for each other. We serve one another. And then we have other ministries and and, and fellowship opportunities in this church. We're going to go roller skating in a couple weeks. And I don't know if it's been said, there's no cost to you. Just show up. Show up at Mount Gretna Roller Rink. Have a good time. I might put on a pair of skates so that you can laugh when I'm very cautiously making my way around the roller rink. But we, we get to know each other in different ways. It's hard to get to know people in this context. Because you come in, you say hi, you know, the greeting time is what, 30 seconds. And then you sit down and your backs are against someone else and you're all looking forward. Christians are to be emotionally involved with each other and you can't do it on a Sunday morning. In the second century, there was a man named Tertullian. He was a church historian, a a theologian. And he said that the Roman government was so suspicious of churches because they were growing so rapidly that the, the Romans would often send spies into the church to check them out. Like, what's going on in these people that say they follow this man named Jesus? And one of the spies reported back to the Roman government. And this is what he said. These Christians are a very strange people. They meet in an empty room to worship. They have no image. They speak of one by the name of Jesus who is absent. But whom they seem to be expecting at any moment. And then he concluded by saying this. And my how they love him. And how they love one another. What a compelling, attractive testimony to be able to see in the lives of believers. My how they love him. And how they love one another. Isn't that what Jesus prayed for us for in his high priestly prayer in the gospel of John? That he wouldn't pray just for himself, but he prayed that his followers, his disciples would be unified. That they would be together. And then verse 9, there's a shift here. Peter speaks to what we shouldn't do rather than what we should do. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So essentially what Peter is saying is in this verse, let God be the judge. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer it out loud if you don't want to. Does God do a really good job being the judge? Yeah, he does. Let him be judged. That's what Peter is saying here. Don't repay evil for evil, insult for insult. The adage says hurt people hurt people. Peter says have an attitude of selflessness and don't extend the cycle of hurt. Trust God 
when we hurt each other. And that's going to happen because we're wounded people that are in need of grace and we're in process. We're being sanctified. And sometimes we're going to do things and say things and act in a way that hurts each other. Don't fan the flames of that and make it bigger than it needs to be. Trust God and break that cycle. In the New Testament, there's a catalog of similar verses than what we read here in verse 9. Jesus called us, well, let's go back to 2.23. This is what the same book that we're reading. This is what Peter says. And while being reviled, he did not revile. This is speaking of Jesus. He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judged righteously. Jesus wasn't hanging on the cross complaining. And he wasn't yelling abuse at the people that were yelling abuse at him. But then he said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Paul said it in Romans 12, verses 17 and 18. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And then Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4.12, And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. Then we read in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Are you beginning to see a pattern here in the New Testament? That God takes a lot of time in a, in a lot of different ways through a lot of different people to remind us, to charge us, that we are not to engage in retaliation. That we are not to keep score. That we are not to be a people that harbor bitterness and frustration and anger towards people that have hurt us. We're not to be a people that cast insults with those who disagree with us. That is not the way of a disciple. Instead, what does Peter say? Give a blessing. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. The basis of what we do in giving a blessing is to show mercy. Even to our enemies. But we've been talking about the context of the local church and and when we hurt each other and instead of saying, well, you know, until they ask for forgiveness, I'm just going to hold on to this. You know, we forgive, we keep short accounts. And what should we seek to do for that person? Bless them. God has blessed us even when we were his enemies. Romans 5:10. For if while we were enemies, we were for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We were God's enemies and he reconciled us. We were God's enemies and he sent Jesus. We were God's enemies and Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We were enemies and God didn't say I'm done with them, but he pursued us. The blessing for insult response, however, is one in which we react kindly when we suffer ill treatment. It springs from an attitude of forgiveness. 
It has at its focus God and the promises of his word. How does one give a blessing instead of an insult? We are a blessing when we refrain from speaking evil, when we walk away from it, when we do positive good and seek to make peace rather than trouble. And again, I know you might say we're in church. We we shouldn't be reminded of these things. And yet God's word says this is how we are to be. The word itself, blessing, means that we speak well of someone. Our attitude is critical. You should be humming the song, make me a blessing, when you think of this exhortation. God, how can you use me to bless someone else even when their actions don't deserve it? Because when my actions deserved wrath, you gave me grace. Make me a blessing, God. And when we give a blessing to someone, what does Peter say will happen? You might inherit a blessing. And that way our enemies are silenced. Listen, relationship chaos breeds more chaos. But when you're committed in Christ, to bless others even when they persecute you, the chaos, the cycle will end. That doesn't mean their attacks will change, but that's the way that you respond and react changes. So to wrap up in verses 10 through 12, Peter supports this call that we read in verses 8 and 9 with the Old Testament. He uses the Old Testament as an example To show us, this is what I mean. This is what the word of God has said. And he takes us to Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. For the one who desires life to love and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What's interesting as you look at Psalm 34 in this quotation is when you zoom out a little more, you, you begin to understand who wrote the psalm. Well, it was King David. He wasn't king specifically yet, but this is a time in David's life when he was running for his life from King Saul. And in Psalm 34, there's a superscription written above it that's original to the psalm. And it says that when he was faking being crazy before Abimelech. Like David is running for his life. Saul is after him. He's at the end of his rope. And he finds himself before Abimelech and David's thought is, well, I'm going to fake being crazy here in this situation to preserve my life. But it was during this season and time that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this song that was to be sung. And what was on David's heart as he wrote these words? To praise God and keep doing the right thing, even when the wrong thing is happening to you. To not repay evil for evil. To trust that God is the righteous judge. Oh, how our lives would be different if this was the song that we sung in a world that is hurt and broken. When people hurt and wound us. And so as we close, I pray that we can continue to be a people that put on the godly attitudes of verse 8, 
all the while trusting that God will give us the grace to show mercy to those who harm us. In that way, we follow the example of Jesus. And as a result, we seek to bless others. And while it seems impossible, we could well possibly hear from them a blessing in return. Be committed to seeking God's best for us and even our enemies, even when it seems hard. Don't just do the right thing. Let the Holy Spirit cultivate you in the desire to have the attitude of seeking the right thing, the highest good for another person. Let's pray.